Hello, my friends. This morning, I was on a run listening to Tom Bailu talking about how identity and values drive behaviors. And as I've been growing myself and helping others, I've learned how important it is not to base your identity on who you've been, but to base it on who you want to be. So if you want to be a great leader, you have to first see yourself as someone who values leadership skills. When you get to the top, you'll see that leadership is everything. You can't have a company, you can't have a team without a leader, and there are a lot of bad leaders out there. So what is a bad leader? It's one that doesn't grow, one that doesn't improve themselves. Great leaders are always growing and looking for an edge. To learn more about how you can raise the bar and develop an edge to identify your competitive advantage and become a better leader faster for yourself and for your team, visit leaderbits.io. Today we are talking to John Callahan, the CTO of Viridium, and we discuss ubiquitous computing and what that means for personal devices, why biometrics are the bridge to making the computer invisible, and the efforts to put control of data back in the hands of the individual. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. work from home or are you just home for the holidays? Uh, I do. I, I am up to our New York and Boston offices uh, quite frequently though. And uh, luckily the company's grown. I used to have to go overseas quite a bit, uh, but this past year we've expanded. Uh, so we have New York, Washington, or New York, Boston, uh, London. I'm in the Washington DC area actually. And um, uh, so the, um, European team has expanded greatly and I haven't had to go over there in about six months. So, so that that's exciting for you, right? Mm -hmm. You get to, you get to be, uh, not travel, not living in an airplane or out of a suitcase, which is (laughs) (laughs) most of the time, but the industry itself is booming and you guys get to do stuff that was like science fiction, you know, (laughs) decades ago with the scanning and the biometric security and authentication. Can you tell me a little bit about, the company, its name, and, and what it does? So uh, Viridium, and I'm the chief technology officer. Um, and uh, so we have a biometric authentication platform. And um, it is a uh, end-to-end solution that is handling authentication, right? Proving your identity to typically what's a relying party is called, technically called, but um, right, when you log into a website and you use your... Uh, biometrics and um, the we work cross devices so that's the other exciting thing is we can um, uh, we don't we can use things like face ID touch ID on those particular phones but we also have modalities that work across phones that's really what's uh, successful and I guess the last thing is the ability of the platform to plug into existing architectures existing identity access management solutions Active Directory the Citrix platform um, that was a must, right? So when we say end-to-end, we really mean it. Mobile to server, authentication and identity verification, uh, and across platforms or across the uh, um, uh, devices. So you have this this platform, and you can work with all of these different devices and manage all the security. That's right. So I mean, it's one of the reasons um, I joined the company, as you said. Biometrics. I'm not a biometric scientist by training. You're um, not. 
Oh. No, 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 no. Uh, we, we have uh, experts that are much better than me. Now, I'm a computer scientist by training, more of a software architect. That's actually where I worked in. But, um, you know, biometrics were kind of science fiction. I don't, I don't know what your first experience was, but mine were when you went into some place and they had those little single digit fingerprint readers hooked up by USB, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Those have been around for, oh, maybe 20 years or so. Uh, before that, um, uh, fingerprint, rolled fingerprint and ink or something, but some of the slap scanners are called. Um, but they were highly proprietary. Well, they are highly proprietary, right? Um, uh, each company, you have to have their software. So there really was no standard. So as these roll out, what was science fiction was really proprietary is now becoming standards are rolling out for them, right? Mm -hmm. And have rolled out for them for security purposes, for privacy purposes and for interoperability. So uh, that's one of the reasons I joined was I said, okay, this stuff is finally breaking out of the onesie twosie solutions. Right? Mm -hmm. And if people are going to start uh, talking standards, do I still be able to interoperate? So that's, you know, essentially how I got uh, involved and very excited about the platform solution. And so this was, you know, you've had an amazing career, right? Xerox, NASA, you were even a teacher at West Virginia? <laughs> oh, you've been reading my bio. Yes, oh, yes that's I correct. have. I, uh, yep. So many of my students, they're out there, uh, uh, tenured faculty at West Virginia University. Yes, that was an exciting uh, time. So tell me a little bit about like what you were doing along this journey from, like, I'm really curious about what you're working on at Xerox. We had, ah. we had a couple <laughs> people that were working on, who did we, I had a guest on the show and he was working in like the Xerox labs and he had written the algorithm for the momentum with the mouse. Like as you move the mouse across the screen, it moves faster. So Doug Engelbart's uh, team. So, so on my uh, confessions on my resume, it says Xerox corporation, Palo Alto, California. Totally true. However, um, I was just, if you, if you, put my age there, a lowly, uh, just uh, graduated with my bachelor's degree. So they don't put those people at Xerox Park, right? Uh, but next door to Park, <laughs> they were trying to, they were trying to commercialize the uh, Park technology and sell workstations. Now in 1985, so I age here, um, the Star Workstation, you can look this up, the Star Workstation, the low end unit in 1985 dollars cost $40,000. Oh my goodness. And it had gray screen monitor, drag and drop, the uh, email, WYSIWYG document editing, this is all. Um, uh, so I was on the part of the, the team, you know, as a programmer, essentially commercial. I think the language was Mesa, right? Uh, wow. It was a precursor to Ada. Anyway, so I was on the, uh, uh, the Xerox Office Business Systems Unit uh, team uh, there, and then I went to, back to do graduate school. Um, and Xerox had a program actually that they were reaching out to universities. Unfortunately, that $40,000 week workstation essentially had a 20 meg disk, meg <laughs> disk that would crash once a month. Um, but it had etherneted services, file server, print server. There was no mainframe in that system. It was really historic, but we had a saying at Xerox, you can tell we're the pioneers because we're the ones with the arrows in our backs. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I mean, I was funny. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was never there when Steve Jobs supposedly came through and saw all this stuff and decided to do it for less than 5,000, but um, that was how the story goes. Um, 
you know, it, um, it was great. It opened up my eyes. I had the pleasure to work uh, with a wonderful man, if I may go on and on here. <laughs> yes, um, please. So my advisor at Maryland eventually left uh, with tenure, the university position, Mark Weiser. So many people will remember a guy named Mark Weiser. Mark was um, uh, my mentor and advisor until he left uh, to head up Xerox's research lab. And Mark's idea that won him several words was ubiquitous computing. And in ubiquitous computing, uh, they did a lot of work on this. The computing will meld, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna segue back to biometrics here. Uh, computing will meld into the background, right? So just like you would pick up a pen or a pencil, I could actually pick up your tablet computer and then authenticate and get my information. Your wall might be active, right? And the most fascinating thing was he said, the same phenomena that's happening now with computing technology happened with print 500 years ago. People were enamored with books. They went around and bragged to each other about books, right? But eventually print melded into the background. Now, one of the key technologies to ubiquitous computing is how would you authenticate, right? When you went to somebody's wall in their house or picked up their tablet, right? You wouldn't do that now, right? We find these devices to be personal. Well, Mark found that to be an anathema. He said that that's not how it should work. You should be able to, the, the world should be open to you, right? That was the concept of ubiquitous computing. And we're totally not there yet. But to do that, you need to authenticate. You need to authenticate strongly and, um, and conveniently, right? So part of my journey has been, uh, you know, trying to to really realize Mark's vision. He passed away in 1999, unfortunately, uh, at the age of 54. He really would have loved what's going on today and really been one of the leaders. Uh, Eric Schmidt of Google worked under him at Xerox Park. Actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, seriously. So I remember walking through the lab and seeing Eric Schmidt's door, actually, when he was still at Park. So, uh, um, so anyway, there's the, the long answer there. I'm, I'm, I'm just, like, fascinated I'm listening to stories over here. This is amazing. So then what did you tell me about NASA? <laughs> so so uh, my problem has been, uh, um, I, so I, I like computer technology. We are so lucky to live at this time. Imagine all of human history, and we are now computing technology, which is fundamental, it's fun, uh, fundamental is writing is on the scene and evolving rapidly, right? So it's very exciting being alive during the sliver of time. People like Alan Turing, right, were some, but they would have even thrived more during uh, this particular time. So I've been unable to focus on a particular job because I, I like lots of different things as they crop up. You know, I'm more of a, I'm gonna say a Renaissance person, but I have difficulty focusing on some of the trends. So I tend to be, look at computing across things. So that's what drew me to biometrics, the next challenge, you know, the next mountain that I think is going to be exciting because, I mean, uh, identity and authentication are really broken. I mean, uh, how many passwords do we have? Password reset. Come on, though. Hold on a second. I'm a challenge. Nightmare, nightmare, please. <laughs> I, I like this little thing right here. My phone opens to me, sees my face. I'm loving so it. Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about. You now have another convenient option yeah. other than passwords. I wish everything could just look at my face and just like, I don't ever want to enter. Nobody, you, you find in life that the innovation happens where people like want to be lazy, right? It's mm -hmm. like, let's save me some time. Like, let's do it. 
entering the amount of time humans spend authenticating is absurd. Yeah, like, yeah, no. It should so, just the world should just work for me and only me. Well, and this was Mark's vision with ubiquitous computing, right? Yeah. So, so I, I uh, the rest of your listeners here, I would uh, urge you go to Scientific American, nineteen September nineteen ninety one. Okay, and the name of Mark's article was "The Computer of the Twenty First Century." That was the title of the article by Mark Weiser and his team at Xerox in 1991. And that's exactly what Mark said, okay? You should, the computer shouldn't be, you know, the focus of your attention. When people first got books, they ran around and bragged to their friends about books. Now it's, it integrates into our life, into the background of our life, right? Look, like at, my, look at my new iPhone. Right, that's yeah, that's well, it's a new book. But exactly, people are bragging about this now. And that's what happened when books first came out. They were so unique, right? But, and and I, I laugh all the time when we go around and we show these devices, but they are a means to living our lives, right? They should be invisible. And part of what you just said, biometrics are that bridge to making it convenient and making the computer invisible, as Mark said in, in, you know, in 91. So, well, it's happening too, because like, for example, Let's let's take a look at my phone here. It's a cute little monkey on there. She's 16 yeah. months old, uh, right? I do myself. Yeah. Nice. And then you see the 24-hour time from it's all my phone, all my data. Well, this thing goes clunk. I go to Apple, put in my Apple ID. Boop. I don't care about the physical device itself. Uh, this is so you're making Mark's point. You've got to read this article, Joel, because it says you should be able to pick up someone else's device or replacement yeah. device. As easy as I would lend you my pen. Ah, right? you're my best friend now. That's a zebra. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. That's, what, that's so, my favorite pen. Oh, my too. So, um, but the idea, you, you get it, right? The, yeah. the, you should not be tied. Mark, uh, and I hate to echo him all the time, but he always echoes in my head through my life. He was very influential. The, the concept of a personal computer, a personal device was was an anathema to the way Mark was thinking about the world, right? The computer should get out of your way. Um, you know, it obviously is helping you, but out of your way, as you're saying, the time we spend, time is one of the most valuable things here, right? And password resets and, and even, so I think we're experiencing now this with, um, with second factor and multi-factor authentication, right? Certainly a, uh. a, a super positive for security, right? Particularly, People are now using biometric authentication, not just for primary like you, but also for secondary authentication. That's where we hit the marketplace, right? Coming in for second and multi-factor, but ultimately moving to replace things like passwords completely, right? And to use yeah. your face, fingerprint, uh, to do primary authentication, to get the computer, as, uh, as Mark said, with ubiquitous computing, out of the way. Yeah. So. Yeah, how do we, like, why isn't there some sort of, you know, I'm an engineer by trade, right? So why isn't there some sort of API style layer? No one's connected the dots where like my Mac has a camera on it. And when that multi-factor authentication comes through, like it should just bounce right off my face, just like it can unlock my computer. Why do I have to type in those silly codes all the time? Well, so that's happening. Uh, and again, so that builds into my point before that I remember being approached uh, uh, by Viridium uh, several years ago. And my questions were, okay, you're a biometric company, got it. But what more are you doing? And my two questions are, 
you cannot go in with a biometric solution. You've got to have a platform. You've got to plug into existing identity uh, systems, okay? The second thing was security, right? How is this secured? And when I heard that they had been working with the IEEE on a standard, it's, it's known as IEEE 2410 or the Biometric Open Protocol Standard, um, that's the API you're talking about. There are okay. register and enroll. This is an open protocol. You can find it on the web. Oh, okay. uh, um, so it's an API, right? You have a client, the server. Um, there are enrollment APIs. There are authentication APIs. And now in fairness, and we are working uh, this next year for FIDO certification, the FIDO Alliance has an API as well. Okay, and that has its uh, server, client server side, there are toolkits, uh, there's a server side API. So this is happening. Standards are advancing, right? Yeah. So, so we're not in that proprietary. Well, you know what I'm learning right now? companies, yeah. I think the thing that's brought me the most by this conversation is that you can say the phrase IEEE. Like, <laughs> I'm over 30, and every time I've seen that, I'm like I, E, 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 E. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I don't hear people talk about it. I don't go to like the meetings or anything, but God, that's so much easier. Every time I, I've read that in my life, my brain oh. says I-E-E-E-E or whatever it is. You could just say I-Triple-E. There you go. That's so much uh, easier. Oh, well, uh, you can thank them for that. Uh, and that's the, <laughs> that's the academic background because that's where academics publish, uh, one of the venues for publishing there. So, How many people do you have right now at the company? So we have about 70 people. Uh, in parts of the world, as I said, New York, uh, Boston, London, and Bucharest, Romania. Ooh. Uh, we have a team. So, uh, and how many engineers? Oh, um, engineering wise, out of the 70, it's probably about, uh, I haven't taken account lately, but probably 45. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you're mostly yeah, engineering. Kind of, yeah, quite. So we have a biometric team and then our mobile and server teams, right? So it's, uh, and the rest is uh, Salesforce and leadership. Um, and we're very busy at the moment because, um, as I said, uh, as you demonstrated, biometrics have come of age. We have these, I call them supercomputers in our pockets. They're only going to get better. And in fact, I will say, it's going to get better than what you're thinking. No, I, I've got I pretty, I've I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you. No, no. So, <laughs> you're not going to win this one, my friend. I understand that humans think. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Humans think linearly in a, in a linear fashion, but technology advances exponentially. Okay. So if I'm going to everyone, if you go talk to a human, our default program state is, oh, what's going to happen in the next five years? We look back ten, we kind of divide, and we estimate forward. Incorrect, my friend. That's linear thinking. Technology mm -hmm. advances exponentially. So I, that's right. I think it's way like everyone else around me is like, no, no, no. I, I, I've. I've argued with people about like, oh, voice isn't the future. Like two years later, you know, it is. <laughs> and it's just because whatever, whatever you can look in society, like for example, with the Alexa thing, uh, I saw my hairdresser. She says her new best friend's Alexa. I had not had a voice assistant or anything like that. I was like, really? Like, are those things advanced? Like, do they work good enough? Cause I tried them a long time ago and they were like, subpar at best oh totally yeah. yeah and she's like no it's great she's like it's her best friend she can tell her jokes she can play stuff so i went home and uh, or i went to, to best buy and i got one and i said they said yeah this thing was like sold off the shelves like we've never we've never been so unprepared and that was like last christmas so that was a year ago 
and this whole past year i have i've fallen in love with alexa like i use her for so much stuff she turns on my lights my automation and i she could do any order i order stuff like when i would need to reorder things on amazon like so useful so so there's a there's a case in point of um of uh you know how does that how does alexa identify us right so uh, you just you used your phone, for example, with Face ID that, uh, on your iPhone to mm -hmm. use Face ID, making your life more convenient. But that was still an explicit authentication session, right? Yeah. So you, you paused, you showed your face and so forth. And that will continue to play a role for strong authentication in sessions where you're doing some, let's say you're transferring a large banking amount of money, not me, but uh, money in your your you know, podcast, uh, guru bank account and, um, uh, or doing some, you know, past, uh, well, I'm saying some credential reset. Okay. But in the, in the near future, our phones, uh, our devices like Alexa are going to get really good. I had to admit this to myself. They're going to get really good at knowing it's you. Oh yeah. Continuously and in the background. So again, pulling that ubiquitous computing theme up, it's not going to wait for these explicit sex sessions. It, it right? doesn't. It doesn't today. You want to hear something creepy? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we have a, we ahead. have one out in the center of the office. Mm -hmm. And the other day, we're just like play Heidi's favorite music, and it started playing the music that Heidi suggests. Like we didn't. We never said Heidi M. Like we never set the people. It it learns the people that are speaking in the area around it. And it will learn their names when you're talking to them. It'll learn all this stuff. And then when they start suggesting songs, it'll develop profiles based on their interest. We never set up a profile for anybody. The only thing I've ever done is just plugged it in and hooked it to my Amazon account. Right. So this is, this is where uh, there are several names for this now. So either behavioral biometrics or continuous authentication or adaptive authentication or behavioral authentication, right? These are all current terms. Our own product in first quarter of next year, so 2019, we have added behavioral biometrics. So that allows you to conduct longer authenticated sessions without having to fall back to explicit biometric authentication because your phone will be able to know that, you know, it, it's, it's still you using it from your last authentication session, okay? And there's various ways of doing that including you know, uh, the gate, right? Movement of the device, geolocation, other thing. learning that it is actually you. If it is in doubt at all, right, that it's you, it will call for an explicit authentication session, right? And ask you to authenticate to, in order to bump that up. But that's coming next year. And in fact, it's already in many products, our product, the first quarter, uh, behavioral biometrics, uh, we call it, or user behavioral uh, authentication. You, you know where um, you can see that today already. You put ideas into my head, my friend. When I travel, my visa yells at me. Boom, fraud. I'm in, I land in San Francisco. Oh. I'm in Florida. Fraud. Uh, You're not in San Francisco. Uh, I love it. I have American Express. I do the same thing. I count on it. I use that for, uh, I would love to see the, the positive confirmation of a purchase, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I get a feeling of confidence through these sorts of things. Um, yeah, we're already seeing that uh, there are privacy implications uh, involved, obviously, that location tracking, uh, use of that to uh, add tracking. I definitely have concerns, but I have, we have an answer to that. Yeah, see, and you know what? I've, I've gone, as I've gotten older, I've, I like, 
I'm, I lean on convenience. Like, I'm like, I don't care. Like all this, the, here's the thing, the amount of value it brings me to, for it to know all this stuff about me is greater than the amount that like, I care if the government knows where I am. Like, I don't care. Like, I just don't but care. What if, but what if I told you that actually that value, there could be even more value involved in that. Right. So this is one of the issues that I'm not a, a legal person. I'm a technical person like you have a technical background. Um, but um, um, what if I told you that your, your data is actually more valuable than that value you're getting now? Pay me for it. There you go. Right. So we, we looked at um, how could we transition, you know, so, so we allow uh, our biometric product. You can configure the um, authentication sessions to keep your biometric data on your phone or device using the native authenticator, uh, for example. Um, it's locked into the phone. It can't you know, be extracted. Uh, that biometric data can't be done, uh, extracted from the phone. We also have configuration for those organizations that need to do biometric uh, comparison on a server. Okay, uh, governments, law enforcement, and so forth. We do have uh, customers in that area that need to do there. That's specialized uh, type of needs. But even in that case, you know, a siloed database of biometric data has to be very carefully protected. And how could you get away from that? How could you, you know, what, what could, you know, what is the other choice? Okay, uh, biometric data on the the user device or uh, biometric data on the server. There is a third choice now, and that third choice. So we um, joined up with. Loud, I'm going to cry. I'm just <laughs> no, not no, not necessarily. You can still keep it on your own device, but there's a this movement that we are uh, promoting that's coming down like called self-sovereign identity. Have you heard this term? No. Ah, so I would. Uh, uh, this is uh, hopefully this is another benefit uh, to your listeners. Um, so the ability for you to control your own uh, data. So let's put this in the context of a data breach in general, right? Yeah. How would you not keep sensitive data of any sort, medical records and so forth, on a siloed database that is probably going to get breached at some point anyway, okay? Will we'll get breached. And spread it, that's right, and spread it out so that you actually retain ownership, right? You keep control of that data. Now, it has, for example, been blessed uh, signed, uh, encrypted properly, uh, whatever. There's several schemas this, but you actually can keep it. You can keep it on your device. You can keep it in the cloud. There's a concept called a cloud wallet. It's right. being advanced by an organization called the Decentralized Identity Foundation. That okay. sounds like I trust it. Decentralized. There you go. So the decentralized identity, the DIF. Oh, um, uh, there we go. Yeah, the DIF. So we are a, a, a DIF member. That is putting you back in control, holding that uh, information. Now, we're not alone in this. We didn't pioneer the concept, uh, but we are definitely promoting this as it's, the, it's the future. Step, it's the next future. step in evolution. I can tell you right you now. In control. Now, the way in which, so the idea would be just like you can now, if I were to give you my driver's license, Joel, yep. right, and you were to look at it, Okay, you would probably tilt it to see the holographic stuff. You'd examine, you know, we're not experts, obviously, like at the airport where they put the UV light. You may even have one to do that. Um, but 
that's between two parties, right? Me and you. You look at that credential and you trust it to a point, right? To say, okay, this is who he is and, and it says he lives here, the picture matches and so forth. Only two parties. What do we have on the web right now? When you do something like login with Google, login with Facebook, login with, you have three parties, okay? You have you, what's called the relying party, the site you're trying to get into, and then the IDP called the identity provider, right? Like Google or Facebook or Twitter. What if I told you that self-sovereign identity will allow you to do that former thing where it's just me and you, and that's it? So that's coming. That's what self-sovereign identity is, is, is trying to enable on the web. And to do so for even critical credentials that are going to be digitized in the near future. So passports and driver's license are still physical documents, right? We have not gone that last step. We haven't, yeah. Ah, but it's coming. Yeah. So I point your listeners to projects by the Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S. Uh, there are other efforts uh, uh, worldwide that actually are working on this. Some of the work is under self-sovereign identity, so that you own and control your own uh, uh, identity credentials. Now, the trick is, and I'm going to say a buzzword here, but don't be afraid, how trust is established between you and me when I hand you a digital credential. You do have to check another party, but that party can be offline. And basically, when I was issued it by a government, they actually signed it, and they essentially put like the public key and the signature on a blockchain. That's the way the information gets from the issuer to know that you can trust the credential I gave you. And again, we did not pioneer this. This work has been going on for more than three years. It's been funded by DHS, organizations like the um, Decentralized Identity Foundation, and uh, 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 we are part of a, an organization called Sovereign, S-O-V-R-I-N, so sovereign.org. Uh, it actually operates, so it's an oper operationalization of this. It, it actually has a blockchain dedicated only to blockchain identity and digital identity. And we are the only biometric uh, uh, authentication company, actually, a, as a founding steward. They're called stewards. Those are the ones uh, operating nodes. That is the next step in evolution, right? That we can get past these breaches, not only now have biometric authentication, but now get away from the breaches by, it's called spreading out the attack surface, right? If your credentials are with you and me and so forth, it's, it's not in some silo where you, you, you break into the castle and you get access to everything, millions of records, right? If I were to spread out the attack surface, that's much more resilient, right, to attack than uh, having a single silo. I like to think nowadays we live in a mainframe era of web services, right? Do you, remember, you, you don't remember mainframe? Oh, no, I do, I do. I want to see where you're going. Well, the idea being when you use um, uh, any large web service, even though it's a large cluster of computers, you can think of it, it is one big silo of data. And we used to do this 30 years ago, with big, and we got away from that through personal computing. Well, another wave is coming where we won't have those silos anymore, but we will be able to establish trust between all of our individual uh, devices uh, that manage this. Now, a lot of it will happen in the cloud, uh, uh, but it will be provisioned differently. Um, so, like, I'll just let's, stop let's, there. Well, yeah, well, let's no, let's not stop there at all. Let's, let's keep going. I want to know, like, how it would look because my background's developing applications, right? So, like, okay, let's say that uh, let's just stick with a really simple concept of like a bank, right? 
Mm-hmm. You get a, a bank has like all my information. They have like my driver's license, my social security. They're a big silo waiting to be attacked. Right. Yep. 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 Now they need that information in order to, to have like to authenticate with, they need that information, right? Like I have to give it to them. They have to have it on file somewhere. So like, how do they have the information, but it not, and then have the information of millions of people, but it not be in a silo. So without, without diving so deep on self-sovereign identity, uh, which is its own other topic, um, I would go to an issuer, okay? Uh, maybe that bank initially, and I would provide that type of information. And you can actually provide it digitally through these digital credentials. But uh, you have to think, that information should really be ephemeral in the sense that- 100%. After I provide it, okay, they could get rid of it, okay? And they've issued me credentials such that when I approach them later, or even if it's portable, I approach them with a credential that I control, and that word control is important, and it has to do with controlling a a private key. Let's do it. I'm sold. I already got it. Let's make storing personal data illegal. Uh, Oh, on a, well, GDPR in Europe is making a step toward that, right? So if you think about GDPR, and let's keep biometric data because that comes under uh, GDPR. If you read that legislation in Europe, it is saying, if you don't absolutely need it, you cannot store it. It must be ephemeral. You must have a compelling reason for storing it. That's part of the GDPR legislation. Okay. Uh, if a company is breached and that data is lost and it is not found to be in that, if it's data they should not have kept, the okay. fines are what? I mean, it's a, it's a, a I think it's upwards of 20% of uh, revenues or something for that company. I mean, it's, 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 um, you know, That's great. It, it's yeah. quite punitive. So um, they want to, uh, I've never met a company yet that doesn't, they do not want to hold this right long-term. They would like to de-risk right by not holding that, including biometric data. They don't want to hold that. So it should be ephemeral at best and it could be used. But I think your question is how down the line when I return to them to do operations, do they continue to have that confidence in subsequent authentication or, um, you know, one thing that occurred to me several months ago is banks not only have to do, they call it know, know your customer type of operation yeah. for an account. That's what you're talking about. Um, that's not just an upfront activity and then you have an account and they stop. They are obligated in most jurisdictions around the world to do continual any money laundering checks uh, and, and uh, these sorts of things, right? They could do this by getting rid of the ephemeral data and using those digital credentials uh, that you have to supply should you need some subsequent verification of your identity. And then finally, if you're holding that digital credential, and again, I your listeners and so forth, look at some of the work on self-sovereign identity on the sovereign uh, network itself, um, that uh, you, the tough nut is to how do I associate that digital credential that I'm handing you? So it's been cryptologically signed. You as the relying party that needs to trust me can check that. But how do you know that I actually unlocked like the, uh, the private key to prove that I control those credentials? That is best done biometrically, right? 
You can do that through passwords and so forth. But the binding, what's called verification of identity, that the subject actually providing the digital credential is the person you're currently operating with there is, that is actually the great unsolved problem at the moment, open to most disruption. State the so, state. Did you understand that? <laughs> In the most simple fashion, state the actual problem. So, so right now, uh, you you uh, private uh, public key encryption. You you're pretty straightforward with that, right? Yep. So, if, yeah, I have a public key published by you, and I say, uh, Joel, I send you a challenge. I encrypt something with the public key. I send you the challenge. You, what do you do? I decrypt it. You decrypt it with the private key. You might then sign something, send it back. I decrypt it with the public key. You, you, I'm sorry, make sure you encrypt it with the private key. I decrypt it when I get the challenge answer back with my, your public key that I have access to. And that establishes that level of trust, right? Yeah. Okay? Okay. Now, the last link that really hasn't been solved is how do I know it's you that control the access to that private key? Somebody could have uh, stolen your password, right? If you lock it with a password or unlocked it with your phone. On. You see the problem? The problem is the subject. How do I know you literally as a subject control that private key? Possession of device is one thing, right? The fact you possess a device that has the private key. But that's only part of the solution, right? How do I strongly bind your ability to control that private key with you? You have to, you'd have to make a new system. I mean, you'd have to add it, you'd have to modify it to include. So, but that's, that's, but that's what our biometric solution does. We rely on public key encryption. We have a private key, but control of that is unlocked by your biometric. Yeah. Uh, FIDO approaches it the same. And so does uh, face ID and touch ID on Apple devices and Samsung devices with Samsung fingerprint. They all rely on the biometric unlocking that private key. But the key there is, how do you know that the, the actual unlocking right, was done by the subject who initially enrolled uh, that key pair in the first place? It's a subtle nuance, but biometrics are one of the, the strongest ways of binding that. Yeah, you really have to use biometrics when you're, when you're building that whole process to begin with. It has to be, yeah, it has to be embedded in its root. That exists. So the whole reason for you know our solution, Fido's uh, uh, solution, is to strongly bind that control the private key, okay, on a device to you. Not just possession, right? Not just the fact you have the phone and therefore can exercise the private key um, in the fashion we just talked about. Yeah, I'm so, sure some uh, of the people with all that Bitcoin wouldn't mind that too much. I'm sorry. I'm sure all the people with the Bitcoin wouldn't mind it too much. Well, certainly that's, you know, so Bitcoin is a, a marvelous type of, I often compare it to using the road. Oh, Bitcoin is used by bad guys. And I said, well, so are the public roads, right? So don't blame the technology. It's a, it, it is a technology. How we use it is. No, no, they're not. They're not. Bad guys aren't a lot on the roads. They're, they, have to, <laughs> they just um, walk into the jail and they just. Last, yeah. last time I checked, people, uh, police were still chasing people down the road or something. Uh, okay, you got uh, me there. <laughs> I guess they so, do exist in public. So it's not okay. the fault of the road, right? The road has you. It's the same with Bitcoin. And no, you're right. But the problem with Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies is use, you know, um, how do I control those private keys and how do I manage them properly, right? It, people have um, panicked. Write them down. 
at the cost of what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this so this gets us to a good point. It it's it's so it comes down to public key cryptography and able to secure the, the infrastructure, right? So I talked about end to end. It's reliant on good, strong cryptography. But binding the subject who controls the private keys. That is a challenge, and that's typically done through biometrics. That's now, what, what solve, happens? Your company solves, right? That was that's what our company solves. Yeah. So, so and not just for for um, you know Bitcoin and stuff like that, but I'm saying for just the control of the private keys for authentication and identity verification. But what if you lose those private keys? Right? What if you lose them? Yeah, you need some sort of process, restoration process, recovery. Right? So recovery. So um, I recall. A few months ago, being at a, a conference and a guy from Google, his name is Grant Dasher, got up. And Grant is one of the people behind the new, um, you know, the Google strong authentication work. And he's got and a cool he, name, Grant yeah, Dasher. Yeah, he's got a really cool uh, name and he's really smart. And Grant said in this talk, uh, since instituting strong second factor authentication, we have had not, not had a problem with uh, phishing at Google. Not one, zero. They, um, however, say we, we encourage longer sessions, adaptive authentication, uh, making sure it's you based on uh, your usage uh, patterns and so forth, just like I said a couple minutes ago about behavioral biometrics. But where there are still issues are what they call bootstrapping, like onboarding and account recovery those are open right to hacking those are the cracks in how does this person who may have lost all their private keys the slip of paper with the fancy words that you wrote down to recover right you just said what if i lose all of those all i, I got my left, wallet and then i, uh, I lost my wallet <laughs> so a digital wallet or a real wallet <laughs> no i just did, like when you were talking about writing everything down i remember my dad's wallet used to be like three, four inches thick. I was like, you're going to get scoliosis sitting down on that wallet. Oh, the and, Costanza wallet. Yeah, 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 the Costanza <laughs> wallet. And he had like all his passwords in it and it like would write it down. And that was like the oh, 80s. God's sake. Yeah, yeah, no, this is, this, is, uh, this is crazy. So in the end, we have ourselves to present, right? Yeah. And even if we're incapacitated, you know, God forbid that we, we, we have ourselves. Biometric recovery and the ability to use that to recover, right, uh, or reestablish key pairs. Typically, in things like self-sovereign identity, the way it's done is you obviously don't recover those private keys, but those, uh, that key is revoked, right? So it's basically on a revocation list, and you're reissued, okay? But the ability to revoke, I mean, that is authoritative in a sense, right? You, you've got to go uh, zero out those keys, uh, put them on a blacklist. Uh, several blockchains have a way of doing this. Um, but to do so is, very, is a very strong activity and can be bound to the biometric, right? So you can say, yes, we can prove, you know, using fingerprint, face, voice, whatever biometric motor modalities to establish you had control of those uh -huh. and we will revoke those and reestablish new private keys uh, uh, associated. That is the self-sovereign identity way of uh, of uh, account recovery. How, how do you how do you handle identical twins? So uh, 
interesting you should say that because uh you know bio all biometrics are not created equal so here's my little biometric spiel okay uh, again i'm not a biometric scientist i came to we, this we will hold you accountable at <laughs> the level of a scientist though obviously yes. so the the all, not all biometrics are created equal face is actually one of the weaker biometrics right can you tell the difference in DNA between identical twins? So on a scale, roughly in my head, Joel, face is, is at about a 25% mark. Now with um, face ID, what Apple has done and, uh, is to put a uh, very fancy hardware, uh, the uh, dot sensor and so forth, to give them more than just your face image, right? You get a 3D picture and stuff. Those are necessary because face, face is rather weak. Up the scale, from there is a, a fingerprint, okay, which is probably about a 90% level. It really jumped from face up. So fingerprint, iris is slightly above that, and then DNA could be even further above that. The problem is that to do iris, right, and, and by the way, fingerprint, iris, um, and uh, uh, DNA, uh, of those, I'm, I'm 100% sure, because I just read the other day, iris um, is different, even across twins, across identical twins. Okay. okay? The, 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 the issue there is most of those, except fingerprint, require special hardware, right? And for the most part, you are not going to be able to equip all phones, at least probably in the next 10 years, with special iris and, God forbid, DNA type of adapters. I don't even see that right now in the market. But our solution right now works even for two or three generation phones for fingerprint acquisition. We basically take a finger, a picture of your hand, right? Okay. And we extract the fingerprint data. It works across uh, Android and, I and uh, iOS devices. Um, and uh, it can extract up to 150 features per finger, which is highly distinctive across um, you know, if it's all eight fingers, it's a, a trillion people, which is way more than the current population of the planet, obviously. So if you get that level of distinction, right, with eight fingers, uh, you can reestablish with a, a large degree of confidence, even in a population of identical twins. So That's interesting. Yeah. But that's only in cases you wouldn't, for example, require eight fingers, right, for authentication purposes. That's, that's inconvenient. But for things like um, uh, account uh, bootstrapping and recovery processes to get that degree of confidence to reissue keys or even revoke uh, old keys on behalf of the user, they might not even be aware that keys are involved in the background, right? So we're right. talking techie to techie here, right? We, we, people shouldn't have to worry about that type of mode. And that's public key encryption has had that problem of making it convenient but hidden from users right and i think one of the last ways of getting that working is really biometrics right because that enables people to use a convenient mode but to get the confidence of the underlying cryptography foundation i like it well this is coming this is why i joined the company as cto because the time is right i mean this is happening now and very quickly and as evidence you don't even have to look at the biometric evidence the the complexity of passwords, right? The the baroque nature of rules and and cycling. Uh, if I have to, if I have to go through another, uh, one of the things that annoys me lately is I put a password in that I think is really strong. Even using a password generator, 
Yeah. And it gets rejected because it doesn't have enough capitals or special characters. I or, and I'm thinking, this is unbelievable, right? Uh, we've reached a breaking point. We have absolutely reached a breaking point. So what's next? And this is uh, why I joined uh, Viridium as CTO. I love me some LastPass, though. Uh, you know what? I see them as strong gap solutions for the meantime, right? We have a yeah. password world. We have a password world. We live in that password world. But, uh, and I'll make a prediction here. I think in, in 10 years or even less, um, you know, when I tell my children, my children, okay, they think I lived in a world when they see black and white movies. Oh, was the world black and white? Oh, <laughs> stop it. Have you heard me? Did you hear me talk about that on the show? No, I didn't. Oh yeah, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was in elementary school. I asked my parents. I was like, "When did when did the world get color?" Here's the thing. Here's the argument to that. Okay, because I I was had some consciousness. Then here here's the here's the logic to it. By the way, if if your kids are asking that, they're very bright because they're logical. Because I can't argue with them. Because here's why. Well, at least for well, your kid. How how old are your kids? Well, now they're they're eleven and fourteen. They're teenagers. Okay. All right. So I. I'm like 31, right? And, okay. uh, or I'm coming up on 31. It's very soon. Uh, but now I'm thinking about age. Anyways, <laughs> you got me thinking about how I'm getting older. <laughs> you, when I was, a, when I was in school, there weren't like really computers, maybe a couple computers in third or fourth grade. We started to have them a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. but all the pictures we would see of the past are in black and white. Sure. Okay. Right. So yeah. all the, well, that would be true. Yeah. Well, all the pictures we would see in the past are black and white because I, I guess like, you know, color was relatively new in photography and things like that. So we'd go to school and all day I'd look at pictures of the past as black and white. <laughs> and I'm just like, we'd watch movies as black and white. We'd see pictures as black and white. And then all of a sudden, sure. some of the newer stuff started to have color. And I'm like, when did, so, we get, when did the world get color? Yeah. So, so my, my point though is, when I tell them now about dialing a phone or playing a record, yeah. this is going to happen to you, definitely myself, of course, when you talk about typing in a password. I know. Okay, we are going to be, that will be anachronistic um, to the point where they won't remember a world in which that happened, right? It, yeah. it, it, um, so we are in a gap, right? So technology like LastPass and so forth are a gap technology and we need them you know, to get from here to there. Yeah. Uh, but I think ultimately long-term uh, convenience and increased security using biometric data, where we are uh, with the strong foundation of cryptography is going to be the, that, that next uh, hurdle. And we're on the cusp of it right now. So. My thumbs will be stronger than my kids. I'll be so used to have typed like my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll have like Alexa doing oh, stuff. Oh, what about that voice? Go back to your Alexa. You don't have that type. Come on. Well, I, have a friend, I have a friend now. He, he literally, uh, I couldn't believe it. He uses transcription all the time. Yeah. Well, you know what's big in China? And when it's becoming big, here, I'll show you my phone right here. You see this? Uh, this little thing in the bottom corner is a microphone next to my text message. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I can just be like, hey, boo, I love you. Bring us office cookie soon. There you go. And then boom, that's it. So if you brag about your strong fingers, that's going to be like me and my Xerox stories. I know. They're going to seem old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so. I love it. This is a fantastic conversation. I learned so much about security. I, you're right on the tip of the future, man. Thank you very much. So, hey, I wish um, 
now it's wonderful to be alive now it's such an exciting future so stay stay in there and stay stay broad yeah we're gonna make it into the computers though i think we'll end up going into the computers I'll just get weird for a second. Uh, look, think about it. We, 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 if you look at the, if you stand back like an alien, right? Just pretend you just come across Earth and you just, oh, you hit play on the past 25 years. All mm -hmm. we've done, it looks like technology's our God. We've built it. We worked for it. We grow it. We improve it. It takes over the world and we constantly are making it smaller and putting it into our bodies closer and closer every day. Mm -hmm. Well, like you think that is just going to stop. There's this thing called momentum. That's not going to stop. We're going to completely become ingrained and become one with the computer and then eventually have the option to like go in it or like, for example, like teleportation, right? Like I totally see us being able to just teleport our consciousness. Like why not put it into the computer, put it into a body. Like why, why is that not possible? So have you read possible? Greg Egan? So the science fiction writer, Greg Egan, uh, one of his uh, best book is, um, I'm trying to remember the title. It's been so long since I read it. Um, uh, anyway, it'll come to me in a moment. But Greg Egan talks about this. We're already about, teleporting uh, stuff. Yeah, that, um, and that goes back to my NASA days. Uh, one of the things I, you know, NASA's done fantastic things. It was a privilege working on projects there. One of the projects I worked on was Cassini, the Cassini uh, Saturn mission. Okay. Uh, a very sliver of that. Uh, but the amount of science produced for the amount of money in those remote missions is incredible. And of course, that was done through telepresence, right? We wouldn't have been able to uh, do that without uh, computer technology and robotics at a distance. And uh, the amount of money we had to spend to get that amount of science, you know, is just a, a tremendous value, in my opinion. So. Tech transfer. Did you hear our um, episode with Douglas Terrier, the CTO of NASA? No, I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I don't, I don't yeah. know him. Yeah, okay. I'll have to oh, uh, awesome. go back on that. Yeah, we, uh, talk about, we talk about the concept of tech transfer, how technology is innovated by government. Like, for example, we got power tools from the space stations and stuff. And yeah, how, how yeah. technology transfers from the private to public or from the yeah, government to the public sector. Sure. I remember witnessing this uh, with the internet itself. And I can say I didn't yeah. invent it, but I was there when it happened. I did have an ARPA.net account. So. Did you? Oh, yeah. Who's that famous politician <laughs> that like, takes credit for the internet all the time? Oh, Al Gore. Al yeah. Gore. You were in the room with Al Gore. You didn't create it Al yourself. <laughs> you were in the room. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even up that high up the ladder. I was just a, a graduate student, early graduate student at that point. So, Okay, John, as we wrap up, what is some advice you would give yourself if you could teleport back 10 years? Uh, take, take that offer of employee number 13 at Adobe and instead of going to graduate school. No, seriously, that happened to me. Uh, <laughs> I say, okay, your girlfriend will wait and, um, and, and you can go back for your graduate degree. No, no regrets there. Um, uh, Besides the obvious things uh, in hindsight, I'm not sure I would say do anything. I would just say have confidence, stay in it, uh, learn lots of things. Um, um, as a technical person, I think communicate more. I think one of the things I like about the role I'm doing now is I do get to evangelize, uh, talk with people like you. Uh, you know, technical people, we, we love to come in, hack for hours and hours and go home. That, that's how we recharge. and, and um, but I think it would be communicate more. Um, 
and, and that's what I would say. So, so jump into open source projects even more, right? Contribute uh, uh, regardless of what level of skill you have. There's always need for QA and documentation type of things or testers on the, even mainline projects, um, uh, you know, on GitHub or something. I would say, you know, jump in uh, more on those type of efforts. So, and that's to a, a technologist, to people who are non-technical. Um, similar advice, just jump into these things, right? And, and engage yourself. Uh, don't be afraid. Yes, there will be trolls that will, why did you do that? And, oh, you did that, uh, you did that pull request wrong, la, la, la. Trust me, there's more good people that are patient, that will help you, than there are all those trolls trying to shoot you down out there on GitHub and other uh, open source projects. So, That's some good advice, too. I, I've actually told some of the new programmers, like, be careful on Stack Overflow. Like that's not that's not an accurate representation of, of everybody. Because sometimes people are really mean on Stack. Uh, yeah, that's that's just inappropriate. We need to be welcoming. We need to reach out to uh, on on such projects and really be very very open to all types of people on those projects. Nice. So, almost thirteenth employee at Adobe, close to Eric, <laughs> right? No, 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 no. I don't know. I mean, I, I've talked to him once. You were close I, to his office. You were close. Right. You walked by his office, right? All, all of these. This, I think, this is your time to shine, man. I think, John. I think this is this opportunity that you're in right now with the biometrics. I think it's the right time. I think you're you're going to end up as like you know, twenty thousand employees right at the company, and I hope you'll still uh, still come on the show and answer answer my emails. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a pleasure, Joel. Thank you. No. Um, um, I hope we grow. I think the time is right, uh, and but we'll always work hard to keep those biometrics private and keep authentication and identity strong. So, fantastic! If you need anything from me anytime, you just reach out. I'm always available. Thanks to you and your team, Joel. Thank anytime. you. Anytime. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer. We're trying to get listed on the top 100 for iTunes and I need your help in order to do this.